Hey everybody, this is Alex with a quick note about our schedule going forward. Greg and I are going to be taking a break for the holidays. Our next episode on Metroid Dread would, be, would normally be scheduled to come out on December 27th. Um, that is going to be coming out on January 10th. Just gives us a little bit of time to enjoy the holidays um, and still give us a little bit of time to finish that episode up for you. Um, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, enjoy this episode on Akira Kurosawa's Crime Dramas. they're listening welcome back to better with you my name is alex i'm here with my co-host greg hello this is a podcast built on the idea that something is better when shared with others each episode we take a look at a media work or works or an author filmmaker that we love one of us loves one of us might not know much about and we talk in depth about it so last episode we talked about the samurai films of akira kurosawa and today we're going to be discussing three of his noir-esque or corporate crime dramas that are a little bit lesser known or at least not talked about in the same breath as seven samurai or like rashomon and those three movies are going to be 1949's stray dog 1960s the bad sleep well and 1963's high and low so i had never seen any of his crime dramas before i was like vaguely aware that those were a thing but the only thing i ever wanted to watch were his samurai movies so this was actually a first for me in watching his crime dramas so i was pretty excited to check them out and honestly that excitement like really pays off yeah so actually this is my first time watching his modern day crime dramas i've just always wanted to watch them because i think old hollywood crime dramas are kind of more my jam they're my they're to me what i think samurai films would be to you that's fair yeah so knowing that akira kurosawa has created some of the best samurai movies ever made i've also heard that he had created some of the best crime dramas ever made so i was like really excited i was like okay i can take this as an opportunity to to watch some of these and we can we can dive into them a little bit yeah it's also exciting to see like the director's take on modern day and more obviously like you know these all take place in the modern day for the time that they were made from what i understand so it's nice to see kurosawa taking on his own time period as opposed to the distant past and trying to make that relate to the present some ways or just entertain these is a lot i think he could say about modern society and i think that was really interesting to me after having watched them it's interesting because i feel like these movies there's a little bit more because we're closer to them there's a little bit more of kind of like an immediacy to their themes or films or a more relatability just by them being more modern i think it's easier maybe for for an audience member to relate to the characters yeah just because they're situations that we can imagine ourselves being in a little bit better and it's interesting because a lot of i think these films some of his samurai films deal with moral issues but i think these films dive a little bit deeper into gray areas of morality and what that means in post-war Japanese society. Yeah, and it's interesting too because culturally, I mean, even going back to the samurai movies, is respecting your enemy, except that they're bandits. But if like they're another samurai, that's something that you kind of respect. And that is a little bit that even culturally still pertains 
in Japan, especially in its media. So you see that present in these two. So I think that's kind of an interesting parallel. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like almost like I think that's true. But I also think in his samurai movies, like you said, that there's kind of a respect for the enemy. There might be like a little bit more of a respect for like kind of the rules of engagement or the honor of fighting. Right. Whereas these movies are much more cutthroat. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's much more about characters doing whatever they can to survive. Right. And also how neither high class nor low class society really is exempt from from that. Right. I also wanted to say before, like we get into the films, if you are interested in a sort of history on Akira Kurosawa and his filmmaking career, we did a sort of overview of his career in the previous episode on his samurai dramas. Hopefully I did a good job on that. I did want to make one correction. I think I said 1949 Stray Dog was Toshiro Mifune's first film with Kurosawa, but it was not. It was Drunken Angel was his premiere in a Kurosawa movie. He's just been working in them ever since. I think they're relatively close together, but just a slight correction there. Not that that's really a big deal, but it kind of mattered to me. I realized it after we finished. Oh, yeah. But go listen to the last episode if you want more of an overview. And if for some reason you're not interested in his samurai dramas, that's fine, too. I get it. Go ahead and just listen to the intro and then come back to this episode if you're interested. Yeah, so Drunken Angel was the year before, 1948. Okay, so I was close. Not that that really matters in anything <laughs> that I was close. It's like, well, I was like one film off. Well, I mean, <laughs> but, by, by sheer nature of Kurosawa being a very prolific filmmaker, I think you were like three films off, <laughs> but only one oh year my off. God. <laughs> <laughs> or at least like two. I think I think Stray Dog was not his second. I think there was maybe one in between Drunken Angel and the Stray Dog. Good God. But they just don't make them like they used to. And by that, I mean, they don't make them all the time endlessly. That's true like having three movies come out in a matter of a year thanks toho thanks toho. <laughs> all right so why don't we dive into this yeah so first up is 1949 stray dog which was directed by akira kurosawa and was written by him as well as ryuzo kikushima his often co-writer and co-producer stray dog stars toshiro mifune as detective murakami it is like you said, not his first movie with Mifune, but I've not seen Drunken Angel, but it is considered like one of his best also. And I think a lot of that is down to Mifune. But I think this was kind of a breakout for them as collaborators. Yeah. So this movie could very loosely be called a noir. It has a lot of noir elements to it, and it is heavily inspired by 1930s detective dramas out of Hollywood. There's heavy use of shadow. There's even a kind of femme fatale character. And there's like a very brief moment of kind of that hard-boiled narration, but it's just at the very beginning. Yeah. (laughs) Or not even like... It's like the second scene of the movie. It's not even Toshiro Mifune narrating, right? Is it just like some guy? I think, yeah. I It didn't sound like Mifune to me. Yeah. There's just a narrator. There was just like a very brief narrator, and then he never returns. <laughs> <laughs> you get that at the very beginning, and then it never, never comes back. So basic plot of this movie is, so Detective Murakami, played by Toshiro Mifune, has his Colt pistol, his sidearm, pickpocketed off of him. And the whole movie is centered around his attempting to track down who stole it and 
to get the gun back. And as he hunts down his pistol through the back alleys of Tokyo, there is a string of robberies and then eventually a murder that are all connected to his pistol. And throughout this, he becomes increasingly racked with guilt and becomes more desperate to track down the perp, who we find out is named Yusa. That's the basic setup of the movie. I'm going to try and stay away from most spoilers, but as we get into kind of themes and ideas, just to kind of talk about the movie in a holistic manner, we're probably going to spoil some things about the movies. So if you haven't seen these movies, I would definitely recommend checking them out. But if you don't mind spoilers before you see them, then by all means, continue listening. So there's an interesting aspect to this movie that I think plays into how the plot ends up playing out, and that is Kurosawa makes a decision not to show the person who currently has Murakami's gun and is committing these crimes. And we purposely do not know what he looks like until the moment that Murakami does and identifies him based off of a description given to him by Yusa's girlfriend. And this eventually leads to, I think, a just masterclass intention of a climax where Murakami and Yusa show down. It's easily, I think, one of my favorite scenes out of these three movies. But before diving into that specifically, how did you feel about this film after watching it? So I really enjoyed this one. It's interesting because I will say sort of off the bat that I think High and Low was my favorite of them. I think they're all fantastic, but High and Low, I think I appreciate the most. That being said, I do love the ending of this movie and the parallels drawn between Murakami and Yusa story-wise in the movie. And I think the climax and really like the very last bit of the movie really lends itself to that. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a way I can say this without spoiling it, but just the view we get of the two men in this showdown, we see how alike they are. All those sort of barriers and roles come down at the end, and we see them as they are two men who are very alike, to be honest. And that's something that you sort of come to realize and gets talked about in the movie. But I think visual representation is really, really masterfully done in that final climax. Yeah. It's really, really striking. You get, a, you get an idea of just the shared physicality of the two people. Right. And knowing that they have a similar background, both having fought in World War II, it's kind of this duel of dichotomies. It's You have a person who is ever tortured by his experience in the war and one who is using his experience of the war to hopefully bring justice in Tokyo. Yeah. What's interesting too, because that final scene, sort of a theme is in war, men became monsters and they sort of understand each other and their inability to fit back into society. And they have a shared experience of both of them having something, the same thing stolen from them on their way back from the war. Mm. And for one, it led him to a sense of justice. And for the other, Yusa, it led him to like a cynicism about the world and his fellow man. But we sort of see them return to beasts or monsters in this final showdown. Like they're rolling through the mud, through the muck, through the weeds together as Murakami tries to catch Yusa. Yeah, it's it's a really, really great scene in a movie that is, I think, full of really good scenes. But that was kind of, I think, Kurosawa nails the ending, and I think that really elevates the film. Yeah, because the ending really sticks out to me most after having watched the movie. That is what I remember most about it, and it sticks out of like, yes, that is Stray Dog. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I guess 
I read that Kurosawa a little later in his career, somewhere, somewhere around, I think, like the 1970s or 80s, he remarked that he thought Stray Dog was a movie that was all technique without meaning. And that's roughly paraphrasing. But he thought that he was too focused on the technique of making the movie and not focused on the message of the movie. And later on, he would come to be a little bit more kind to it later in his life, closer to when he died. But I think that's interesting because I do feel like it's maybe a little less over the top with its message. It's a little less explicit in comparison to some of his other movies, especially the two other ones that we'll be talking about. It's like a little more modern art house where it's like you're not necessarily supposed to get like the clearest message from it, but it definitely makes you feel a certain way and you do draw something from it, but it's a little, it's not quite so like didactic. Yeah. It's not necessarily trying to make you feel a way. It's just kind of feel a certain way. It's just trying to make you wrestle with something, which is I think also indicative of being a younger filmmaker. Yeah. I think that that is often something you see in filmmakers earlier work oftentimes but it is interesting because i do think that there are two scenes slash conversations in the film that i think really state the theme in not overt ways but do that that is kind of where the message of the movie comes through for me there's a conversation i think it's about halfway through the movie where murakami and his partner which is played by takashi shimura who is also in seven samurai was probably one of my favorite characters in seven samurai yeah he's amazing in that movie yeah he continues to be an incredible presence in kurosawa's films he's in stray dog and in the bad sleep well i can't remember if he's in high and low or not he's probably in high and low but it's probably really minor I, I would think so. I don't remember him being in it. So Murakami, in his conversation with his partner, he remarks that he finds it easy to relate to you. So I believe he says something like, you got to feel sorry for him. And his partner, Sato, rebuts that and says, there will always be bad men in this world, and it is our job to stop them from hurting other people. Like, as long as they're out there empathizing with them, isn't necessarily going to stop them from hurting other people. And it's interesting because Murakami points out that they both fought in World War II, like we said earlier. And I think Murakami specifically says, like you said earlier, that men became monsters during the war and understands that where the cynicism and desperation of Yusa comes from, and especially in his inability to fit back into society, but Sato is very focused on the fact that there is no in-between and makes a comment about how maybe it's a generational thing that Murakami and Yusa belong to the après-guerre generation, the post-war generation, and how that shared experience is something that Sato doesn't have and that that is leading Murakami to relating to Yusa, but he is adamant about the fact that he should separate himself from the criminals that they're hunting down. What's interesting, too, because it, Yusa, it does seem like a little bit like a ploy. Like, everybody that has met Yusa and that they talk to is like, oh, he's got such a depressed, sad sack look on his face all the time. Mm -hmm. So that sort of garnering of empathy or pity is a common ploy for him. And it's perhaps that Sato sees through that a little bit, too, of that's part of the plan. But yeah, the relation between the two, and, and that goes between two similar action, two similar situations, what the two characters do with those is very, very different. And that plays a lot more into 
uses cynicism and his sort of selfish, well, I've been wronged, so it's right for me to wrong people motivation. Yeah, it, it is, like you said, the, yeah, every character that runs into Yusa remarks upon the fact that either he was like a sad drunk at the time or had a, a downtrodden demeanor. But it's interesting when you meet his, is it his mom or his sister? Oh my, I think it's his mom. I think no, it's his, it's his sister. It's his okay. sister. Yeah, I was like, I think it's his sister. But so, and how just fondly she talks of him and how really just has had a, a bad string of luck. And, and he came back from the war very different from the man that he was before it. And it's, it's interesting because the movie, I think, is really trying to make you understand that who he is now is not necessarily who he always was and that there is a human being who is committing these crimes, but is there is a human being there and there is some context for his life, <laughs> if that makes sense. There are some aspects of him that anybody could relate to. What's interesting, too, that plays into the title, because I think Sato calls him a stray dog at the beginning because he takes a gun. I forget the what was the initial reason for him buying the gun or renting the gun from the people? At the beginning of the movie, Murakami is pickpocketed and they track it down to his gun dealers in the back alleys of Tokyo. And the woman who rented the gun to him, essentially, or sold him the gun, says that he was going to return it the, the following day. And it's assumed by Murakami that, oh, he must have planned on doing something, thought better of it and went to return it. And then when he saw them arresting the gun dealer, he kept it and decided to commit the crimes after all. And it's a continuation of Murakami's constant blaming of himself for everything that happens in the movie. Yeah, it's it set up the fact that he was maybe going to commit a crime and then thought better of it and was going to return the gun, but then ultimately has to keep it because they arrested the gun dealer. Right, and that's that's why Sato is like, well, he's a stray dog, but once he commits the crime, he's like, now he's a rabid dog. He's backed into a corner. The crimes are going to keep happening. And so they even recognize at the beginning that Sato specifically didn't think he was much of a person that would like kill. Yeah. But they still recognize that he's pushed into a corner. And I also think the dichotomy between Murakami's reaction to something bad happening is to blame himself while Yusuf's reaction is to blame everyone else. Yeah, that's true. And that's sort of what separates them a lot. Yeah, Murakami finds every reason for something to happen to be his responsibility, whether it's the fact that he lost his gun when a woman is robbed and shot in the shoulder, he's like, well, this wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been pickpocketed. Like, that's my gun. And he's constantly trying to retire, <laughs> resign from the force. And yeah, like you said, Yusa, it is kind of, it's the world's fault, essentially. Which both are not entirely right, but not entirely wrong either. Right. Yeah. Because like, yeah, Yusa's been pushed into that situation by the world but murakami kind of was too and murakami is in some ways fair to blame himself like he made mistakes but that doesn't mean that he's entirely in the wrong either but yeah and i think sato even says like if it wasn't if it wasn't the cult it'd be a browning they would have sold him a different gun he was always going to go and rent a gun from these people and if they didn't have your cult they would have had a, a different gun so there's not really a reason to blame himself i think the film wants us to be with Murakami in empathizing with Yusa mm -hmm. early into the movie and around the time that he's talking about this with Sato. But I think up until the moment that 
Yusa commits murder. Because it seems like from that point on, there's less kind of talk of empathizing with him. Yeah, and both you and Murakami kind of realized that you know, the time for empathy is over, this has to end. Yeah, and so I think that, that it's kind of like once that line is crossed, it's like you can empathize with someone up to a point, but once a certain line is crossed, there becomes a, a point where it becomes much harder to do so. But I also wanted to talk about another really great scene that was with Yusa's girlfriend. It's a little bit later in the movie. They're, Murakami is staying with Yusa's girlfriend in order to kind of wait to see if it's a to keep tabs on her to make sure she doesn't go find him or if or if Yusa contacts her to be there. And there's a part where she goes and gets this really expensive nightgown or it's not quite a kimono. It's some kind of dress. It's like a very modern, flashy looking dress. Yeah, it's a very expensive dress. And she goes and gets it. And then her mother is giving her a hard time about about being with Yusa and all of this. And then she lashes out and says, we have to do worse things than steal to have things like that. And she throws the garment on the floor. And it was a garment that Yusa had stolen for her. And that was a really, I think, interesting idea in the movie and a, I think a good indication of where empathy for them could come from, that kind of this idea that if is stealing from the rich kind of a victimless crime, is it all that bad? If in order to afford things that are expensive anyways, we have to debase ourselves. Is stealing the worst thing that I could do in order to get this? And it kind of sets up this idea that I think it runs throughout all three of these movies that you can debase yourself in multiple ways in order to get ahead. You could rob, you can steal, you can sell yourself, but you can also be consumed with greed and you can be corrupt and cutthroat in order to be at the top of a large corporation. And all of those things could get you money at the expense of other people. But there is such a focus on these kind of lower crimes of robbing and stealing and selling yourself. And I think it's interesting that she sets this up where she's like, why is this such a big deal? Why is I could have done way worse things in order to get the money to get this. Right. And I think that's interesting, too, because in these crime dramas that we're talking about, Stray Dog and High and Low are really more Stray Dog is very like a base crime and every man crime. High and low is much more of a very intelligent sort of mastermind committing a crime. And then the bad sleep well is corporate crime. So it's interesting the breadth of illegal activity that he takes on. And that definitely seems to be this is a great way to sort of start off and talking about it. It's like, yeah, no one becomes rich through honest means and the different ways in which crime exists in the world and the different reasons for it but empathizing with why people do it yeah i think it's throughout all three of these movies i think that there is a certain level of understanding that is given to these characters that are in these situations (laughs) but i guess as we move into bad sleep well which deals a lot more with corporate crime and crimes committed by rich people that there is less understanding as you move up the social ladder absolutely it's it's kind of like kurosawa saying like you can understand why someone steals bread but 
trying to understand why someone screws someone out of a shareholder deal and or forcing someone to commit suicide because they know too much about your corporate dealings. There is kind of a clear line where you can understand why someone who is in a desperate situation who does not have much to their name would steal things. But it's harder to understand why someone who appears to have everything. You can understand why that they're trying to protect that, but there's less of empathizing with it. Yeah, the crimes become more egregious the more you climb up the social ladder Mm -hmm. is really what it is here. But it's like society kind of treats them backwards in a lot of ways. Right. We oftentimes focus on these kind of petty crimes and people who are backed into a corner and are just trying to survive and people who are protecting their mass fortunes. Yeah, because that's the power dynamic. You can only we can take out the little guys. But when it comes to corporate crime, it's like. There is a huge barrier in trying to catch or do anything about that. Mm-hmm. And that that's a big deal in the bad sleep well. Yeah, which I think would be a good segue into that movie. <laughs> yeah. The next movie that we're going to talk about today is The Bad Sleep Well from 1960. The Bad Sleep Well is a very, very loose adaptation of Hamlet. I haven't seen them, but my understanding of some of Kurosawa's other Shakespeare adaptations or inspired works, they stay close to the general plot of Macbeth and stuff like that. Throne of Blood is definitely very devoted. Like I went and read Macbeth after reading Throne of Blood and it was like, okay, yeah, like this is the same plot. Yeah. And instead here, he takes Hamlet and takes the basic setup of a man avenging the death of his father. He uses it as a jumping off point to explore this world of just purely unadulterated greed. Yeah. And it it also takes from Hamlet, I think, the idea of getting your hands dirty Mm -hmm. and sort of stooping yourself down to that level to avenge that person. It's trying to bring someone to justice sort of at the sacrifice of your own morality yeah your own conscience so the basic plot right off the bat there is a huge huge contrast between the setting of stray dog and the bad sleep well then stray dog we're mostly in either a police station or we're in the back alleys of 1949 tokyo whereas in the bad sleep well we're 11 years in the future we open on a very lavish, high-class wedding taking place. It opens with all of these reporters coming in, asking if the wedding's happening, like what's going on, and then a police detective comes in and arrests a character named Wada, the chief of this company called Public Corp, and he is the chief of the contracts division. And then after that, we watch the reception unfold from kind of the eyes of the reporters who are then filling each other in also the audience and on the exposition and the character backgrounds and kind of their relations to one another. It's an interesting way to, to kind of exposition dump. Yeah. It's very interesting because this movie also stars Toshio Mifune, but he doesn't seem like the main character for like a good 30 minutes. Yeah, it's like 30 to 45 minutes of just... Where was Toshiro Mifune again? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't recognize my first. <laughs> a lot has to get built up before they can really get into the main plot of the movie. So it does take a little bit. Yeah, and I think the result is is that you're able to kind of follow the character relationships to one another, I think, really well. Yeah, it's a very plot-heavy movie. It's a very plot-heavy movie, and there's a lot of complex inner workings. And I think oftentimes with movies like this, you can kind of get lost in the details of who is who, who did what to who. 
But I think for the most part, this movie is pretty easy to understand. And I think part of that is this way that he drops exposition just through the reporters talking to one another. Well, it's like the first 30 to 40 minutes are like setting it up. And then you can just it's like going up a slide. He builds up and up and up, sets it up. And then you just sort of get pushed down to the bottom mm -hmm. where the rest of the movie can play out. And you don't really need that much exposition other than that because you understand who the people are and why they're doing what they're doing to some extent. But you understand the plot, and then it sort of is much more like in the scenes as it happens. You don't need that much exposition. There's just a lot at the beginning. Yeah. What we learn is, is that there was potentially some sort of illegal contract deal or illegal bidding negotiation that happened. Five years ago, an assistant, I believe that they call him an assistant, in the ministry committed suicide by jumping out of the fifth floor of the ministry fifth or sixth yeah we learned that kind of like just a few minutes before the wedding cake is revealed to the wedding party and this giant cake made in the likeness of the ministry building with a rose which looks like a black rose but that could just be that because it's black and white is sticking out of the window where that man committed suicide it shakes the whole party and it shakes specific individuals who all become major characters of the plot later it's kind of interesting because we don't really know what the context of this is if this was first we're kind of like this wasn't obviously meant <laughs> to happen this wasn't the idea that they had for a wedding cake so it's like who's sending this as we find out later koichi nishi played by toshiro mifune is the illegitimate son of that man who leapt out of the ministry building and he is marrying the daughter of the man who is ultimately responsible, the VP of Public Corporation. Right after the wedding, we learned that Wada of Public Corporation was arrested and a man named Mira, who I believe is part of the other company that is involved in this. I think so. I don't think he's part of Public Corp, but I believe he's part of Dairyu. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but... Yeah, Dairyu. He is, he is also arrested. So we get like a little bit of interrogation scenes of the cops and them and then they have to let them go and they try to re-arrest Mayura for embezzlement charges and his lawyer then pulls him aside and is like I just got back from a meeting with the board and they told me to tell you to see this through the bitter end and then Mayura panics and jumps in front of a truck and kills himself yeah it's a very very bleak <laughs> opening to this movie and that that covers about like the first 45 minutes of the movie and this is a two and a half hour long movie so there's a ton more that happens but before we kind of talk about more of the ideas in the movie we already kind of said that our feelings about all three of these movies but how did you feel about this movie and how was what was your reaction to it so yeah i definitely like this movie a lot and i like Knowing that it was a very loose adaptation of Hamlet, I'm like, this is going to be a tragedy. So it's really tough to watch and have that expectation of what happens. But even then, you're still really kept on of, well, this is going to be tragic. And it's called The Bad Sleep Well. So I was like, OK, how much can be done? How much are they going to accomplish? And the movie really does lead me to believe that maybe they'll accomplish what he's doing. Like Nishi will really get revenge and maybe it'll play out differently. It just amazes me that it's capable of doing that. And it presents us with a character that we want to be happy, even though we haven't seen him do good things. We like the relationship between him and his longtime friend, who is the real Nishi. And like we're rooting for him because he actually does love the daughter, the VP. 
but like you really really like the characters in this that aren't the ones responsible i mean gosh tosho mafune is just incredible i think he's so good he's so good you can't say that enough he is good in every single one of these movies but i think that this might be my favorite performance of his it's very different watching him in the samurai movies and these more modern movies one because he looks totally different because he's not like sporting a mustache and goatee or anything yeah, he's much more clean shaven and he's not all dirty yeah he kind of has a baby face he's a handsome man <laughs> he is a very <laughs> handsome man you can't help but immediately relate to him and the fact that he really does love the daughter his wife yoshiko and you just you really I think, understand where all the kind of the quote-unquote good characters are coming from. Even her brother, he starts out by kind of threatening Nishi at the wedding by just yeah, being he's like, if you like, make my sister sad, I'll kill you. It's yeah, like, and everyone's, everyone's just like, like, oh, what? <laughs> everyone's just like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so you kind of, you understand that that's going to be an issue in the movie at some point, that he he might be the reason why Nishi is found out or whatever. But you do also understand his character a lot through the, just these little conversations between he and his sister about their dad, how neither one of them is entirely sure whether he's a good man, but he's been a decent father to them. And I think that was really interesting. And it's kind of like they have to reckon with the differences between the father that they know and the man he is outside of that context. Those three characters and then the real Nishi, who is just like a very like always smiling, kind of sarcastic man but he's there for his friend through and through he does he does some of the dirty work he is entirely loyal to nishi yeah they worked in a munitions factory and they like sold oil and that's how they got enough food enough money for food post-war yeah it was like after the munitions factory was bombed they found oil that was still there and then sold that for food they got a cart yeah you get all these little moments of backstory and just little conversations between these characters that really, I think, flesh them out really well. And you really get a good sense of why we're rooting for them, why they're good people, why they're different from these executives. One of the things about the executives and Vice President Iwabuchi is sort of the main antagonist, and that's the father of Yoshiko. And her brother is Tatsuo, is the guy's name. But we see his family life and his corporate life clash with each other. And then you sort of want a redemption for him in how he handles that. And of, of course, this being like a bleak tragedy, he doesn't. He doesn't handle it well. We see the lengths that he would go to to maintain his corporate lifestyle and his wealthy lifestyle. But I think it's it was very interesting story-wise and for the character to have those combat each other. Yeah, and, and to have a clear moments where he is presented with the opportunity to redeem himself. Yes. Specifically at the pleading of his his daughter, once she finds out, pleads with him to redeem himself, to just come clean. And we then learn just how <laughs> depraved he is <laughs> as a human being. Yes. Yes. I think in order to talk about this movie, we have to spoil certain things. And there are certain aspects of spoiling this that are inherent to the plot of Hamlet. So I don't feel bad about spoiling the fact that this is a tragedy and it does not end well. Yeah. But there are other aspects of this movie that if you don't want to know, you can skip ahead to high and low. But yeah, he goes so far as to drug his own daughter with the poison that his boss 
sent him to kill himself with it was like a sleeping medicine but obviously if you take too much of that you'll die yeah and then he originally is just like oh like i'll use it to sleep tonight and then gives it to her in order to make it so that because she insists on going with him to find nishi when i was watching that i was like are you fucking kidding me yeah i was like oh my (laughs) gosh like he's is he really gonna do it is he really gonna do it and he does yeah yeah and And he lies to her he deceives her as well he does all these things he plays a good father and he plays remorseful and then he drugs her yeah he puts up this whole act of like oh like i'm gonna turn myself in i think your brother's going out to to kill him i need to know where nishi is and plays this whole sympathy card of wanting to only having a, a good eye out for nishi only looking out for him and in reality is just going to straight up murder (laughs) and will do anything that he can in order to get there and that was interesting to me because i think the movie presents that character was like okay if this is your opportunity to redeem yourself you're not going to be able to fully redeem yourself but this is your opportunity to win some sympathy and his character just goes nope (laughs) doubles down and it doubles down and that was really interesting to me because we earlier in the movie we see nishi really wrestle with how far he's going yes he has convinced wada to fake his own death wada was originally going to kill himself by throwing himself into a volcano (laughs) which is amazing Uh, (laughs) i love that (laughs) that was like the most over the top thing and it was like that's amazing (laughs) like it's so crazy and he stops him from doing it and then just convinces him to to fake it and he uses wada to torment shirai and he uses him to be like a ghost to, to torment him and to make Shirai like lose his sanity he even almost throws him out the window that his dad threw himself out of and then convinces him that he poisoned him when all he did was give him whiskey and like he really goes far he pushes him to insanity yeah he straight up does push him to insanity you see Nishi really wrestle with that with how far he's going and how he's like maybe I'm going too far but he basically laments the fact he thinks he might be pushing it a little bit And to see his character wrestle with that and then his counterpart not wrestling with that in any way, shape or form (laughs) is, I think, kind of the clear delineation between the two characters is you have the one who is wrestling with it, but is on the side of being right, or at least it comes from a more empathetic place. And then you have a one who is kind of has all the power in the situation who is not remorseful about any of the power that he wields and who it kills. What's interesting, because Yoshiko is at the the center of both of those, is because he starts to feel more empathetic towards the characters because of Yoshiko, because he really has fallen in love with her. And so he sort of starts to have doubts because he knows the path. He knows what path he's walking down, and that doesn't involve Mm -hmm. Yoshiko. It involves his own tragedy and turning himself in. Right. And he knows what that... what that would be doing to her. Yeah. And then we see the other character who doubles down on it has no regrets. And that also is revealed to Yoshiko. Yeah, it is kind of it's the characters. How they treat Yoshiko is kind of the ultimate deciding of their of their character. Yeah. <laughs> in some ways, that's how you kind of fully know who they are. And yeah, that's really interesting. The only I, I will say, I think that what was interesting, I don't know quite how I feel about it yet, is that 
the complete not showing of Nishi's death at the end. I kind of like that because I, I love the mystery of what actually happens and the feeling of more of the aftershock from it than I like the tension that it builds. Mm-hmm. So you see the car crash and you're like, well, that must be involved, but you're not sure. And then to sort of find out after the fact what they did to him, it's almost better to imagine that. And then they just went and slept. You know what I mean? They they ran off the people that did to him. And so I kind of like that while they did all this and they're totally cool. Life goes on. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It creates even more distance from what they do to him. So it's like you can't even relate to it because you don't even see it. You can't even kind of place yourself in the shoes of doing that to someone else because you're not even allowed to see it done and it separates it from you even more than it normally would be it's almost more of an evil act because you don't see it yeah and i think imagining it is worse than seeing it in some ways yeah i think it does have more of an impact it was just it was it was interesting part of me felt like maybe they did film it and kurosawa just decided not to include it yeah it, it kind of felt that way to me and I don't know if there was a way of really getting around that feeling. Yeah, I don't disagree with that feeling. I do think it's ultimately better for not having that in the scene. Yeah. But it is kind of felt, if that makes sense. Right. One aspect of the movie that I find interesting, which kind of relates to samurai movies in some ways, is that every character has a master, that their loyalty is tested. Yeah. Mostly by by Nishi. He is taking all these executives who are loyal to... The person above them. The person above them, the VP. And he is slowly trying to get them to admit what they did was were wrong to kind of get them to turn on to turn on him. But Nishi has the presence of his father and, and the responsibility that he feels to avenge his father's death. So there's this constant kind of responsibility to someone above you. Nishi's is more honorable. It's righting a wrong that was done. Whereas everyone else's, including, as we find out later, the VP of Public Corp, there's someone above him, presumably the president or CEO, who is demanding things of him, testing his loyalty. And the the VP is scared of him because whoever this person is, is the one who sends him the drugs to kill himself if necessary, rather than be brought in by the police. Yeah. And so there is kind of this, who do you hitch your wagon to determines your character in some ways. Right. I say like related to some of the samurai movies, because there is the aspect of if you're not a Ronin, you have a master, you are a protector of their honor as well. If that makes sense. There's more of a noble aspect to it as it's presented in some of the samurai setting than it is here. It's much more, if you hitch your ride to someone who's evil, then you're fucked. (laughs) That's your life now. That's your life now, and you're going to be continuously involved in these things. That idea struck me by the end of it. That seemed kind of interesting. I Yeah, I agree. So I think that's all I have to say about Bad Sleep Well. I really liked it. I think... It's a little long. It is a little long. But I also don't know entirely what I would cut because I do think things that would normally get cut by a producer or a studio in America ultimately do really add a lot to the movie. I think the whole the romantic subplot would probably be cut nowadays. Probably. 
Yeah, that felt very of the time. Mm -hmm. I think it does a lot of lifting in terms of just allowing us to relate to these characters even more. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about it either. I, I just that one was really good. I just finished that this morning. Yeah, I just finished it this afternoon. So that's the one that we both have most recently watched. These movies fly by. They're long movies, but especially compared to their samurai movies, which are like equal in length, they move a lot faster because of the mystery. And that doesn't necessarily mean that like, oh, yeah, these are better because they feel faster when you watch them. But there's something I can appreciate about that, especially after watching them back to back. Yeah, I think that they're paced really, really well. So our next movie is 1963's High and Low, just the first one of these three that I watched about a month ago. High and Low stars Toshiro Mifune once again, and he plays a shoe company executive who prefers the old fashioned way of making shoes and the the utility of those shoes, like shoes being well made, being useful and being ultimately good for the person wearing them the movie opens he is visited by three other executives from the shoe company that he works for and they are arranging a takeover of the company because they basically disagree with Toshio Mifune's character whose name is Gondo they disagree with Gondo's and the president of the company's view that shoes should be well made and they shouldn't sacrifice the product for profit. They want to be able to make more fashionable shoes cheaply. And so they plan to do a takeover the company and kind of oust the president of the company, I believe. Mifune basically is like, you guys are talking to the wrong fucking person <laughs> because that is exactly like not what I what I believe. You guys can go fuck off for all he cares, essentially. And that's basically what he tells them. As soon as they leave, he arranges a buyout of the company so that he would be a majority shareholder in the company from some shareholders that are in Osaka. He, I guess, had been planning this previously, but he was going to make the move now to stop them from taking over the company and ruining it with their more profit-driven focus. So he starts arranging this buyout of the company, and then he gets a call from an unknown person who claims he has kidnapped his son and that the ransom... I forget the exact dollar amounts, but it would essentially require him to use the money that he was going to use to buy out the company, plus some, in order to get his son back. But then, shortly after, after Mifune is like, well, okay, like, this sucks, but we'll do it. Like, we'll figure it out. We'll do it, and we'll get our son back. Just as he comes to that decision, it is found out that it is not his son, because his son comes walking into the room. It is the other boy that his son was playing with which is the son of his chauffeur and now gondo mufune's character is less sure about paying the ransom because paying the ransom would mean financially crippling his family and he was willing to do that for his family but now is less optimistic about that <laughs> yeah suddenly he's like well, hold on. Maybe there are other options. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden he's like, oh, uh, wait, 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 wait. Let's let's talk about this some more and figure out if there's other things that we can do. Or long story short, he eventually does decide that he's going to pay the ransom. But it's interesting because about the point where the ransom is paid, the film shifts from almost entirely taking place inside Gondo's house, which lives on this hill above town, to the detective's hunting the kidnapper kind of through the town. And so we move from this high place to this low place. 
as they're searching high and low for the, <laughs> the culprit. Yeah, high and low takes on a lot of different meanings in this movie. A lot of different meanings. I really like this movie a lot. I think it's one of the best movies <laughs> like ever made. I think it's so good. I think it's one of the best of the genre. Absolutely. Yeah, I do think this is my favorite of the three that we watched. I mean, it's, it's sort of hard to pick because they're all great. But I do. I do agree with that. It's just like after watching, I had goosebumps because <laughs> i yeah the especially end, the ending the, it's so good the ending which we will get into when we talk a little bit more about spoilers is i think i think it's just it's so good it's so incredible and all of the performances are so good <laughs> i know you've already kind of said but what were what were your feelings yeah no i think the ending is th- again kurosawa really knows how to end a movie And I think this one also has like a really strong ending. So this is one of the things that I really noticed in all of these movies that you don't get as much in the samurai movies. Seven Samurai has a lot of this, too, but just the genial nature between characters Mm -hmm. and like groups of people feels very dynamic, but realistic in them. And I feel that a lot in the way that the detectives are working together and working with Gondo and then how they interact with Gondo and his family. I love the way that the detectives and the police talk to each other when they're in Mm -hmm. the like rooms discussing progress and discussing what they're going to do. I love the way that they all move together when something big is dropped. They all like stop and like look up. I love the way that Kurosawa directs and handles groups in all of his movies. There's a lot of that in Seven Samurai, especially between the samurai. But you get it in like every crime drama because you get it with the reporters Mm-hmm. in the bad sleep well in stray dog you sort of get it with some of the other police force that interact with murakami yeah something about the way and i don't know how he does it i'm not a director i don't have experience in that but the way that he directs groups of people and the way that they very naturally interact with each other that has like a very humanitarian like loving friendly way of just being with each other that is very good spirited. So for all the like cynicism that might be in some of his movies, especially the bad sleep, well, that's still present. Yeah, I plan on getting into this a little bit later, but I think something he is so keenly focused on is this difference between modern day focus on money and focus on social status and all of these things versus an older more traditional way of thinking of being focused on family and community. And Mm -hmm. I think that really shows whenever he is filming groups of people and how they interact with people. And you can really get a sense of their relationships to one another and how they care about one another, even in just like the smallest ways. And how they all work towards a general goal. And that that is very, very present in High and Low. Oh, yeah. Like I said, it's present in all these movies, but very, very present. Because that's so much of just a group acting. Yeah, I'm going to get into this a little bit later as well. But Kurosawa's blocking, I think, also goes into this, how he stages actors. Yeah. Where they're where they're standing, where they're sitting, where they move to and how he films that, I think, goes a long way to making these long movies not boring. Yes, they're interesting to look at always. There's always like three layers in each of his scenes. There's always like three or four things that you could be looking at in any scene. Yeah. And that's why I think the rewatchability of these movies would be really high. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to get into that a little bit more later, so stay tuned. But <laughs> a little teaser. Uh, how far into this are? <laughs> like an hour and 15 minutes into the podcast. A little teaser for... Uh, for a little later <laughs> for the Just second half of this podcast so like we're talking about this movie has a lot to dissect but one of the most prominent and one of the most dynamic and just like important examples of theming that he does that he uses throughout the movie is how gondo's house sits in relation to the town around it how it sits on a mountaintop versus the town below and how we spend half of the time of the movie in that high place and then half of the time in that low place. It's interesting how that plays into the kidnapper's motivation, but not even motivation, just kind of like his own feelings towards Gondo. This is where we're going to get into spoiler territory. But at the end of the movie, the kidnapper says like your house looked like heaven from where we were and then he says something like it's amusing to make fortunate men taste the same misery as the unfortunate there's this continuing aspect of someone trying to bring someone from that high place down to the low whether it's taking the child from them bringing it to the low so that they would have to come down from their mountaintop essentially or trying to bring him down financially though he would have no way of really knowing how much financially that would actually impact him, he still knew that it would be a significant amount of money for him. That is the most prominent use of that dichotomy between the high and the low in the movie. And he really succeeds in doing that. They do have to go down low. He has to ride like a passenger train with everyone. Mm -hmm. It's very different. He does drag him down from his mountaintop. The whole idea is that, like, he could see everything that was happening in their house because they were so high up on a mountain. You can literally see the the house from anywhere. Yeah. And so it's it's just high and low just takes on like a million meanings in this movie. And it, it's really, really well done. He's sort of obsessive in it. Like it didn't it could have been anyone that lived in the, the house. It's not that Gondo did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. It's because he lived in the house. And this guy said he needs to be taken down a peg, basically. Yeah, it's kind of about just what the kidnapper feels is like the flaunting of his wealth. Even though we know that Gondo came from a very humble beginning, which is what I think makes him a very relatable character throughout all of this and the fact that he is the one who was wronged. But it complicates some of the themes that were in the earlier two movies where it's less about you know, the the rich person being evil. And it's kind of more just about Gondo representing the rich in general to the poor people around them. Because to someone like the kidnapper, yeah, it could have been anybody up there. It wasn't the fact that Gondo did anything wrong. It was the fact that he was rich. And yep. that class resentment, I think Kurosawa explores why that class resentment is there in his other movies more so and then this is kind of using using the class resentment as a jumping off point for exploring these characters. Well, it's interesting, too, because it starts with such a moral dilemma that you're like, oh, is this going to be the entire point of the movie is this dilemma of like, well, how much is a life worth? Right. Are they worth the same? But it answers that about halfway through. He ultimately comes to the right decision. So like, yeah, what you think is going to be like the focal point of the entire movie isn't. It's kind of like... 
he really, really wrestles with it. And he really almost doesn't make that decision. But in the end, he does. And that is kind of ultimately what sets Gondo apart from, like, the VP from the Bat Yeah, like, well. Iwabuchi. Yeah, Iwabuchi. It's kind of interesting the context of these three movies is the fact that he makes that character more sympathetic. Also, it's Tosho Mufune. <laughs> like, yeah. he, the acting goes a long way. So good. It's interesting, too, because, like, yeah, he started from low beginnings, Gondo did, and then worked his way up to that height. Mm -hmm. And then he ends low again. Yeah. To the kidnappers' dismay and surprise, when they meet each other at the end, Gondo's been doing well. Financially, not necessarily, but he's fine. He can take care of his family, and he's working, and he's happy. He's happy with his decision. Yeah, he's working for somebody who values him. And but he's working like the job that he started out doing. Yeah. So talking about that ending, the kidnapper, his last request is to see Gondo. And Gondo goes and visits him. And you see it on the kidnapper's face immediately. He starts out kind of having this smirk like, haha, I got you. And then yeah. it slowly turns into a frown. And then it's like, well, it looks like you're doing well. So you can see the dawning of the realization on him that he didn't. He didn't ruin him. He wasn't ultimately successful in ruining him. He brought him down. He ultimately kind of made his life better in a lot of ways in terms of being able to be true to what he wants to be doing. He has a less wealthy job, but he is doing the thing that he loves doing. The moment that that dawns on the kidnapper, I think, is so good. And that actor is really, really great. It's interesting because I guess Kurosawa had another scene that he wanted to end on, which was, I guess it was like the detective and Gondo, like having a conversation essentially about the movie or about what happened and walking down the street talking. And then while they were filming this, Kurosawa was taken with the performance so much that he was like, I don't need to even film that other scene. Yeah, he's like, we'll do this. And it's it's amazing. It's so, so good. And it's it's so interesting because Mufune, who is so good at like, he's so good at both of these things. He's so good at being like unhinged and having yeah. high energy and just being like a crazy person, like in Seven Samurai, or being a very stoic, very controlled person oftentimes that very controlled nature gets broken by little outbursts like we see in the bad sleep well yeah but in this movie he's even more just like he's so in control of his emotions as this character that when the kidnapper is trying to make himself feel better by being like, oh, like I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And then when he starts to realize that that Gondo is happy with where he is, it completely like overtakes him. The emotion that he's feeling and the fact that he didn't succeed, that his actions were kind of for nothing. He's getting put to death for it. And he's getting put to death for it, that he's now losing his life and he didn't even succeed at what he wanted to do. And he wanted to die seeing that he succeeded. And that's why he's wanted to see Gondo. Oh, that performance is so good because he just like increasingly yeah. gets a more erratic and starts shaking and he's constantly trying to deny the fact that he's scared of dying. And yeah. it just like that fear eventually just overtakes him. And when that divider comes down on the window, it's like it's like the ceiling of, of his fate as you hear like yeah. him screaming. It's 
it's so, so powerful. And I think it's interesting also that Kurosawa doesn't really give you a motivation other than the fact that he just wanted to take down a rich man. Because it's like, in real life, there would definitely be more to that. But Kurosawa's not interested in giving us that because I don't think it's ultimately the reason why he decided to take down a rich man is not as important as the fact that he was trying to take down someone who was rich. And it's not like he was really all that low down, like he was a med school student. Mm -hmm. He worked at the hospital. He, he was a medical intern is what he's listed as. Yeah, he was doing fine. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because we see like really low, like back alley heroin addict low. That is the poor, poor that live in the area that Gondo is above and mm -hmm. doesn't deal with. And this guy deals with them and has to treat them on a regular basis. And that sort of that to me was kind of his part of what plays into that motivation mm -hmm. and his resentment of that, even though Gondo's not a bad person, but he was like, he doesn't even know this exists probably. Right. And I think like it's even his lack of knowledge of that would make that character even more angry, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's ah, that ending is so good. I don't know what else to say about it. It's Honestly, great. yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about it either. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that we've missed with all three of these movies. I wanted to get into kind of a wrap up, but I did want to talk about from a technique perspective, what I think separates Kurosawa from like any other director. And I think a lot of it has to do with his background as a painter. His use of the camera in all three of these movies, I noticed it right away in Stray Dog. And I think because it's there in Seven Samurai, but there's a lot more happening in frame in Seven Samurai most of the time. And there's a lot more characters in Seven Samurai. So it's a little bit more, I think the camera's moving a little bit more there. And the characters are moving a lot more. Yeah, but I noticed it right away with Stray Dog is that he sets up a static shot that's on tracks, but it's static when the scene starts. And then a character will get up and move, and then he'll track, usually like in a semicircle around, and follow that, that character's actions into another part of the room. Or a character will enter and will follow that, will like kind of wrap around the character. We always come back to another static shot, and then he sits there for a second. And he usually only does that once in a scene, that move. There's a few where he does it twice. But for the most part, he starts static. He moves with a character and ends static. And then there'll be like a cut to another shot. And then maybe like another cut to another shot. And then he might do it again. But in those static frames, he creates multiple points of focus for the audience to look at by either character placement and with their eye lines, so where they're looking in the frame. One of the most clear examples would be in The Bad Sleep Well. Shirai loses the, the I can't remember how much, but it's a lot of, he loses a lot of yen that, were, a lot of money. that was in a safety yeah. deposit box. And he starts to come out to grab his case to prove that he wasn't the one that took the money to Iwabuchi. Nishi Mifune's character realizes that, and he quickly takes the money that he stole from the safety deposit box and puts it in his briefcase before he comes out. And then he goes back to his desk and then... Shirai comes out and he's looking through his bag and you see Nishi looking at Shirai and you have Shirai looking at the briefcase and then you can just watch Mifune's eyes where he looks throughout the frame in this entire scene because he'll look at the briefcase and then he'll look up and he creates like a triangle of different eye lines where these characters are looking and what you should be looking at because the characters are looking at this briefcase but then you're like, you're looking back at Mifune because you're like, well, 
what's going on and then like yeah, how is how's he, he reacting how is he reacting to this and then he's looking at the briefcase or looks up at shirai you're you're constantly just tracking these three objects and then shirai moves back to his jacket where he's going to try and put the money back in his jacket and moriyama comes out of the office and then you have to set up another triangle of moriyama and shirai and the briefcase in between them, as well as a pole in between them. So there's already this separation and this backing into a corner of Shirai. And then the, the camera moves with the characters to where now it's Nishi, Moriyama, and Shirai all in frame with the briefcase in between all three of them. You can just watch Mifune in the background sitting down, move his eyes from Moriyama to Shirai to the briefcase and back. And as he watches these characters interact, making sure that he his cover won't be blown. And there's so much going on in just this small scene. It could be its own little, like, short film. <laughs> it's so well done in how he sets up these characters and just in where they're placed in the frame and where they're looking tells you their entire relationship to one another. What's interesting, too, I think of high and low in the room. It's night. They've got all the curtains drawn and they're talking about the plan for getting the money to the kidnapper. And you've got Gondo and Tatsuya Nakadai's character, the detective. They're sitting almost back turned to us in the couch. So that's one layer. And then the next layer back is two detectives counting and going through and writing down the serial numbers. That's layer two. And then the third layer, even, you've got way in the back at a table. I think there's two more detectives Mm -hmm. sitting and talking or like having a smoke. And there's just three layers to look at. And they sort of go in between all three to tell the story and the scene without having to do close-ups, without having to do like these different shots. You can tell what's going on. And the detective, Nakadai's character, moves from layer to layer to discuss what they're doing but there's not a lot of camera movement. It's all in blocking. It's all in blocking, and he never cuts into standard coverage. He never cuts into just, like, going from, like, a master shot to two medium close-ups to two close-ups and then back out. He doesn't do that. And it's interesting. He sometimes cuts in, but it's always on a movement. Like, in The Bad Sleep Well, when he's talking to Yoshiko Nishi, when he sits down to talk to her, it moves in. It changes the angle a little bit and moves in a little bit more so you can see their face facing each other a little mm-hmm. bit better yeah but it's still it's motivated by him sitting down yeah the cam- and then when he stands up it backs out again yeah the movement's not just motivated by being like oh we need a close-up here it's motivated by what he wants you to be paying attention to and what's important in the scene they're sitting down they're getting more intimate mm-hmm. move in it's interesting because i was reading a thing earlier that was talking about this and the fact that alfred hitchcock because alfred hitchcock also did a lot of this as well he remarked at one point i think it was in the late 50s or 60s about how modern movies at the time were becoming just two photographs talking to one another it continues to be so true and you can always tell like when you're getting bored in a movie when it's just like it's just cutting between two people talking to one another and you're like i guess i get what what's going on because they're saying it but with Kurosawa, because of how much care he takes in and setting up these layers, which he accomplishes with like this tremendous deep focus cinematography, like just where everything is in focus, you'll have somebody like super in the foreground who is mostly in focus, and then everything in the background is also in focus. And it's so 
crazy to me. It's a lot harder than you think it is. It requires like a lot of light. Well, I was thinking the lighting too must be insane on the setups, just trying to make sure everyone is lit and it looks good while also not looking unnatural is incredible to me. His cinematographers are really great. So he had two cinematographers on high and low. He had Asakazu Nakai and Takeo Saito. And Asakazu Nakai was also his cinematographer on Stray Dog. Okay. So he had the same cinematographer for Stray Dog and for High and Low. He had a different cinematographer named Yuzuru Aizawa for The Bad Sleep Well. His cinematographers are incredible as well. So Stray Dog is in Hollywood format 4x3, and The Bad Sleep Well and High and Low are in like Cinemascope widescreen with letterbox bars. But all three films are really, really pretty to look at. And I think Kurosawa knows how to set up a still image. When he has the camera locked down, he creates these layers that the characters move through. I think it has to do with his background in painting and also using painting to communicate to his cinematographer the images that he wanted. It's interesting, too, because I think they did a lot of rehearsal I think he used multicams on it and he did a lot of rehearsal. So it was sort of theatrical in that way. They would rehearse all of these things because they're shooting on film. They don't want to waste film. So they would have rehearsed the blocking a ton. They would have rehearsed all of this stuff and the way that they act. And then to use like multicams so they can just do it all at once and then cut as they need to. But for having used multicam, it's amazing to me how little he'll cut. It's always one main camera that they'll move a little bit. But chances are when they do that, like push in, chances are it's it's one take. All the actors sit down and it's like, okay, we take from this camera for that part. It's not necessarily that those may have been recorded in two separate takes. And that to me is, is so interesting to think about of that more theatrical way. Like I would love, love to try and make a film that can emulate this where you rehearse a lot with your actors and then you try and make that blocking. And I obviously that's not something that everyone could do. And that's probably not something that like I could manage to the same level. But I think like what a treat that would be to have a modern movie that can do that on like a modern budget. Mm -hmm. I will say I think in terms of modern films that I think accomplish simple yet complex blocking, I think Knives Out. Yeah has elements of that where there's different layers of where characters are stationed set up in the room and each time you watch the movie you can kind of watch a different character and see how they're reacting but it's like even more complex I, I can't think of anybody else who has done it as well as kurosawa yeah I, I would love if i made films even animated movies and directed those like i would love to have kurosawa like as my main inspiration for the directing style i think that would be I mean, just because he's, his movies are so good to look at. Mm -hmm. And then I, I guess I want to talk about maybe like some differences or similarities with his samurai movies. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but in his samurai movies, there tends to be like a little bit more of a clear morality. Yeah. He definitely complicates the samurai myth more so than like the propaganda at the time would have you or would want you to take in. Typically, the characters that are noble and good are noble and good. And the bad are either you don't see them in the same way, like you only see them as acting as an antagonist or they're just motivations just aren't given to us. And so it's kind of a much more black and white, like good versus bad or character gets itself into a situation. How are they going to get out of it? Yeah. And a much more kind of a focus on heroism, like you said. 
and like what makes a hero versus what makes just a normal person because in these other movies he's dealing with characters that are meant to emulate real people in these situations they're faced with moral dilemmas that either make or break their character it's like muddied and gray and it's like he presents complex characters that have very complex motivations for what they're doing and i mean it's something that's a part of the genre like the anti-hero but it's like they're not even really anti-heroes in the sense of hollywood anti-heroes they're just complex human beings whose motivations are very complex but are also understandable for the most part yeah there's always there's a reality to their characters there is a darker side to everyone characters and moral dilemmas get complicated further those are things that he explores and there are complexities to them in his samurai movies but since this is so focused on like morality and the dilemmas involved and the craziness involved in that he has to flesh those out a lot more in his crime dramas than he necessarily has to in the samurai movies which can be a little more focused on the action oftentimes with period dramas in general there's already a level of separation between the audience and and them because we haven't lived through this time period there's a layer in between the film and us we're already kind of suspending our disbelief and being thrown into this so the kind of the complex moralities and complex motivations aren't necessarily as important for getting us into a character's head because we're already suspending our disbelief. So it's kind of a little bit easier to kind of just, I think, put us there. But with the more modern setting, I think he's just much more interested in really having the audience relate to these characters and reflecting parts of an audience member's character within the characters on screen yeah they're very different and he does deal with similar themes especially like in high and low when it comes to class mm-hmm. that's explored a lot in his samurai movies oh yeah but like having a modern take on it is very very effective especially for us it's weird because they're like a little more thoughtful because they can be because there's not this sort of necessity of action or necessity of this historical time period so he can spend a little more time just being thoughtful about modern society Mm -hmm. because it's more analogous and there's just not a lot of like setup and action that's required when he has more to say about it because it's also the time that he's living in exactly whereas the samurai movies are kind of about drawing parallels and this is more about saying something very specific about current society and none of this is to say that either one is better than the other they're just very different yeah we talked about this before the podcast we really do feel it's it's a matter personal preference oh yeah i i could never like i think i think seven samurai is still his best movie yeah but i think the, the characters being more complex and high and low is personally more engaging for me but i still really really love seven samurai and i think it's i think it's a better movie yeah i still think seven samurai is his magnum opus and i don't know that anything will change my opinion but like it's the same director but such a different feel and such a different experience yeah yeah, I guess we can move on to our recommendations. If you yeah. don't have anything else to say, I I don't have anything else to say other than just like really check out his movies. Check these out, yeah, they for sure. Are incredible and like again, I would love to be sponsored by the Criterion Channel. We're not, but like if you're interested in watching his movies, get a Criterion Channel subscription for a month or two and just sit down and watch watch through them. They have, I think, like almost all of his movies on there. They've got the vast majority of his movies. Yeah. And they're all phenomenal and they're all worth watching. So I, I hope anyone listening to this takes a chance and, and 
watches one of the greatest filmmakers to work in the business. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to start for recommendations? Or do you want me to start? I feel like you oftentimes go first. And I have one ready right out the bat. I watched another movie last night called Nomadland. Okay. Which, uh, by the time anybody would ever be listening to this, they probably have heard more about because it's nominated for, I think, six Oscars. I have not even heard of it. It's on Hulu right now. And it is... It's so good. Like, I went into it not fully knowing what to expect. It's directed by Chloe Zhao, who previously did a film called The Rider, which is about a, a rodeo cowboy, a real-life rodeo cowboy, and he kind of plays a version of himself. But that movie was her second movie, and it won a bunch of Independent Spirit Awards. And this was her follow-up to that. It's called Nomadland. It stars Frances McDormand. Okay. And... It is based on a book. It follows Frances McDormand as she basically packs up her life after the death of her husband and goes on the road and kind of joins this community of boomers, essentially, that all live in vans and RVs. And she kind of joins this community of people who have kind of taken onto the road and don't feel like society is really for them anymore. It's very interesting. There's only really like two or three actual actors in the movie. Everyone else is a non-actor who is a part of this vanning community. Interesting. And they're playing versions of themselves. A lot of them are featured in the book, which is a nonfiction book written by, I think she's a journalist. She did a deep dive nonfiction book on this community. And a lot of the same people who are in that book play versions of themselves in this movie. And it is just so good. It's one of those movies that just like pulls an emotion out of you. Or at least it did for me. It just pulled out so many different emotions. And I spent like half the movie just like with tears in my eyes. It was it's really good. I wasn't expecting to like it that much. Like I said, I'd heard of Chloe Zhao. I'd heard the writer was good. But just this deep dive about a forgotten town named Empire, Nevada and the people who are kind of left forgotten when the main source of the economy is shut down. Hmm. And it's it's a deeply sad movie, <laughs> but it is very good. And if it doesn't win Best Picture, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> that movie sounds awesome. I might check it out because I love the idea of like having people that aren't actors playing themselves. So... My recommendation, I've been reading a lot of stuff lately and a lot of good stuff, gotten kind of back into graphic novels and comic books. So I would say my actual recommendation for this week is the Hellboy comic book series. I really didn't have any experience with Hellboy. My fiance and I, we watched the first Hellboy movie a while back because I was like kind of interested and I knew it was directed by Guillermo del Toro. So I was interested in that. And I, I enjoyed that well enough. And that's actually relatively faithful to the comics story is but the hellboy comics are really really something it's funny that we talk about like the weird noir aspect of stray dog that just sort of gets dropped at the beginning like the first like book book and a half two books of the hellboy comics there's like this noir narration by hellboy that i actually kind of like but it just gets dropped like almost immediately like it's really fast Mm -hmm. but it's beautifully drawn. Mike Mignola's or Mignola's 
drawing is incredible. I love his art style. I love the sort of simplicity and feeling of it. But then the story is like very thoughtful. If you've seen the movies, you're used to this sort of blockbuster big hit, rough and tumble, beat em up Hellboy, which is not necessarily accurate to the comics. He's this much more subdued, like, man, I've been doing this for like, 50 some odd years i'm done with this shit i've seen it all i know a lot and i'm just here to do the job beat the shit out of some guys beat the shit out of whatever i need to in front of me and listen i don't care about my backstory i don't care about i'm trying to live my life as best i can and there's a really great like emotional aspect to it there's a really great writing and sort of sympathizing and coming to understand the sort of supernatural paranormal stuff that he's dealing with, he really tries to tap into the emotions of the stories and the emotions of these paranormal activities and empathize with them as opposed to like, oh, isn't this interesting to look at? And like, Hellboy's going to fight it, which I kind of feel about the blockbuster movies. I feel like I'm ragging on the blockbuster movies a little bit, but was it? <laughs> I think it was just last night Hannah and I watched Hellboy 2. Which, they're fine movies, but they're very different from the comics. There's an omnibus series of Hellboy in which you can find an almost comprehensive collection of his individual, like, novels collected into just paperback omnibuses. They're each, like, $25, and there's four of them. The only thing that's, like, not included in that that I wish were were the short stories. There's, a, I think, two collection of those that are, like, the same price, but they get referenced and it's not like super important to have them, but it's been a super enjoyable read. And like, I really, really, I don't know how to express how much I love just the more thoughtful, subdued nature of the comics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's my recommendation. Check out Hellboy. It's a pretty low threshold. Each of the omnibuses are really sort of like a complete story in themselves. So if you're interested, I think you can like go on Amazon and buy the first one for like not even 20 bucks. Sit down and read it, see if you like it, and uh, it gets better from there. Yeah, I think I've read not the first omnibus, but I've read like a couple volumes of Hellboy. And I remember really, really enjoying it. Definitely something I've been meaning to to read at some point yeah. to go through and just do a deep dive. So yeah. That's awesome. Highly, highly recommend. On that note, any any final thoughts? Just go watch Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> it's got something for everybody. It's got, like, I think if you're not interested in analyzing the technical aspects of a film or like i think they're just enjoyable films on the surface but i think that there's also just so much more there if you are interested in that and there's tons of video essays everywhere on the internet so many people have talked about kurosawa and examined him and there's a lot of smarter people than us out there that have talked about him. Yeah, I was about to say, we're just another drop in the barrel of... Yeah, so there's there's an endless amount of resources to just go and just learn how he made films and learn, just learn from him, especially if you're interested in being a filmmaker. And like any aspect of being a filmmaker, they do mm -hmm. really well in those movies. Like for me, it's storytelling. Yeah. That's my focus. And so I, I love the stories of his movies and to sort of analyze those but also the cultural aspects as well. I think that probably about wraps up this episode of Better With You. Where where can they reach us, Greg, if they want if they <laughs> want to talk to us? Yeah, <laughs> if so someone wants to email us. <laughs> they can email us at betterwithyoupod at gmail.com. If for some reason you want to email us, uh, 
I don't know what we're going to do with that message, but we will read it. Yeah. But otherwise, I have no idea. Get some feedback or something like that's helpful to us. And I appreciate it. Be sure to like, rate, subscribe, smash the bell, smash that (laughs) bell for the podcast. So you can continue to enjoy stuff with us as we enjoy it. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell tell a friend. That would mean a lot too. You can follow us at Twitter at, at better with you too, at better with you. Number two, I always think there's like a at something or like at twitter.com, but no, it's that's just it. I really lost track there. Point is, thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to us. This marks the end of an initial run of five episodes that we're recording that we're gonna start putting out. So if you're confused. If this is coming out like weekly and you are some insane person that is like listening to them as they come out because you listen to podcasts with no one listening that you've never heard of, one, thank you. But two, if it seems like these are outdated, that would be why they were recorded over a number of months. And this is actually going to be the last one that we're going to record for a little while. We're going to start putting them out and just sort of start getting feedback, get a feel for it. After we finish some of the more post-production stuff, these episodes will start coming out and hopefully we'll record more. We'd like to, but we're just kind of going to see how we feel after these episodes come out. Yeah, I've certainly had fun with these five episodes, tech issues notwithstanding. Uh, Well, you know, (laughs) that was my fault. (laughs) Yeah, if you've listened to... Sorry about episode episode, (laughs) then you know what we're talking about. Really sorry. But yeah, if you stuck through that and you're still enjoying the show, then yeah, tell us. We would love to know if there's anybody out there listening and appreciating our discussions. Or you can tell us to go fuck ourselves. We'll read that too. We'll read that too and then feel bad about ourselves. So, I mean, please don't. That's please not don't. cool. That's not a cool <laughs> thing to do, even as a joke. But like, you could. I'm going to cut this. Yeah, probably should. Uh, All right. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.